0: Welcome to Our Next Existence by Katie and the Chorus. I'm Katie, former technology strategist turned reluctant spiritual medium, and I channel messages from the Chorus, a group of beings just beyond our sensory perceptions who are loving, expansive, and who greatly enjoy sharing their perspective of us. Join us each week as we share and discuss their ideas about humanity's existence, purpose, and future. Concepts you can draw from to accelerate your path, expand your perceptions, and ultimately step into the flow of the universe and your life. I've been thinking a lot about last week's episode since I recorded it, in which we talked about the life-giving power of preference and also death. Now, as usual with the chorus, there's about 20 or 30 layers (laughs) in each episode about what they're talking about which i know that some of you have probably sensed as you've come through season 1 and season 2 it's like you catch a meaning in maybe the first listen and then if you go back and listen again two or three more meanings may come through to you the chorus has described this to me as as a conscious recognition of our energetic progression that we come to a topic and we expand into it in certain ways and we recognize that new understanding, but there's something that calls us again forward into that understanding and then we again expand and then calls us again and et cetera. So sometimes as I make an episode, as I'm speaking, I am feeling certain aspects of a topic that come through as words that feel right to me, even though logically, I'm not totally sure what it is that I'm talking about. (laughs) And so maybe you feel this too. You feel a sense of something that's coming through, even though like in words, logically, you might not be able to say it succinctly yet. Like if somebody asked you about an episode and you tried to summarize it, you might start with the feeling sense of it. You might say, well, you know, it was about this and that, and it was just, it was really great because I understood. It doesn't have that type set, clear, and totally defined sense to it yet. It's not something that you can easily just rattle off. So since I recorded that episode, I have been reflecting more and more on some of the connections that were presented And one of the ones that has stood out to me is the relationship between preference and death. Now we talked a lot about how we have these beliefs that keep us from basically sensing our own preference, that keep us sort of in these patterns. And the patterns are what prevent us from sort of recognizing that we want something else or need something else because the beliefs are telling us that we are accomplishing in the patterns something that has to be done, something that has to be upheld, often in ways that are unconscious to us. As we expand, we start to see things from different perspectives. That's when we start to get curious about why we did it that way. (laughs) Why was that so important to us? Sometimes as we discussed, often we will feel a sense of shame, even as we contemplate these moments of freedom of choice of preference and that was also a large part of the function of these aspects of the beliefs shame almost unconsciously will turn us away from a topic or a possibility the sensations of shame are so unconscious to us that we won't even dare sometimes to imagine or to think about what it is that we want so now as you take all of this together it can kind of feel like on the topic of death and we talked about how death is often not preferred. And and we really don't like this experience. We don't like talking about it. We don't we don't like even thinking about it. I know that I have had experiences of knowing that someone that I was close with lost a family member or a loved one and I have a hard time even thinking about it. You know because it just it just gets me on an emotional level, it really hits hard. I think we probably all have that experience of watching somebody else grieve and and feeling grief also, even if we are not the ones who lost someone to death. So I'm sitting around the last few days thinking about that episode and Kind of recognizing that as a human, what we might say is that we really need to just learn to let go more. We need to let go of those ones that we have lost. We need to be better about moving on. We need to sort of heal, let go, stop, in a sense, the grieving process, or, or maybe speed it up. And that maybe if we could release that heavy anchor of grieving the loss of someone to death, that then we might be freed up to feel our preference. It feels logical, doesn't it? Do you feel that difference? On paper, what I just said feels logical. We've all heard the good advice. You can't grieve forever. You need to move on you hear that resonates somewhere in our heads <laughs> if you were if you were going with a body feeling but does your heart resonate with what i just said so now i'm going to try and say it in a slightly different way that is more on the frequencies of where we're all heading what we are releasing is our concept of death. Love is one of the greatest forces in all of creation. When we lose ones that we love in this day and age, when we grapple with the questions of that loss, when we wonder about the experience of death and what is on the other side, energetically, we are moving through all of the beliefs that created the veil, and the illusion of dying. You are not being asked to abbreviate your grieving process, to move on back into life with fewer of the ones that you love. You are being called towards a vaster understanding of frequencies, of connection, and of the power of love. For so long, the idea of death served us here. It was the great barrier that reinforced and upheld our experience of limitation which we chose. From never wondering even or being able to conceive of even anything on the other side, to spending quite a few millennia preparing for death, (laughs) fighting death, trying to thwart death, we gave ourselves incredibly expansive experiences that we are coming to understand. And now we are releasing all of those things And what we find in that release is that we prefer not to lose. We prefer to stay connected to the ones we love. We prefer to imagine and to think about the possibility of it all continuing on in more and different exciting ways than perhaps we had ever imagined. We like the idea of an afterlife that is full of light and love and laughter and connection. And as we each allow ourselves to move in the direction of that preference, the veil of death fades. It becomes not quite the impenetrable barrier that we thought it was. And through that perspective, through that view, we understand even more the experiences that we had here. In the first part of the episode, you'll hear directly from the chorus themselves, and then afterwards we will discuss, if that's what you prefer. Dear ones, bright, shining souls of infinite creation, powerful creators of a vast experience of limitation, teachers to us all about ourselves, about possibilities, about existence itself, We delight in being with you because there is so much to delight in around you, about you, because of you, within you. Can you imagine an existence in which all is delightful? Can you sense the possibility of that kind of trust? where you are not calculating, or planning, or worrying, where you are purely afloat in the present moment, experiencing with your entire mind-body instrument the anticipation, the expectation, and a sense of reassuring love that surrounds you always. And a human might say, what would we do all day (laughs) if we are simply floating through a vast existence of infinite love? What's the point? Might even feel a little boring at times. The suggestion of an idea of something so easy that everything you ever desire is at your fingertips in a moment, and this, dear ones, is the culmination of the vast belief system complex that you built that we adore so much, that from our viewpoint, the thrill of the universe is never-ending the joy, the fun, the exhilaration, the sense of invincible power is ever-expanding. And yet, at the suggestion of these things, a human might feel a slight withdraw from that infinite concept, questions that seem to suggest that it may not be all it's cracked up to be, or that it may be lacking something that you have here. There are many ways to look at a human existence. One way, by our view, is a path of increasing limitation, deeper and deeper resonance with a set of most profound frequencies in the universe that caused that beget an expanded acceleration through the universe and creation. Another way to look at the human existence here is one of suffering, is one of inferiority. As you know by now, we hold each of these perspectives in equal turn. All perspectives in creation are expressions of that one love. Therefore, as often happens, when expanding through different viewpoints of increasing clarity, it is not about deciding which one is right. It is about discovering what it is in each of these perspectives that you prefer. And you might say, how could there be anything in the perspective of humanity as an inferior race that I might prefer? Well, it might depend upon... What that inferiority connected to, what it accomplished, what it did, what other frequencies it affected. You see, the idea of looking at things in a vacuum, as a human would say, in a one at a time kind of manner, is a very human perspective. If you take any of the perspectives that you are about to encounter in singularity, you may find yourselves unable to truly connect to them, to truly understand what it is about yourselves and your experience here that you better understand by way of encountering that perspective. For, at the minimum... There are always two perspectives. The perspective that you are encountering, even if you are choosing to look at it in a one at a time kind of fashion, but always and inevitably your perspective, too. Is that what you feel always? That humanity was inferior? Has this perhaps been suggested to you and by way of encountering this suggestion you are now coming to a conscious recognition of how you feel? Do you sense within yourself a larger capacity and an untapped potential that has not yet been expressed by anything in your conscious recollection of your existence here? Do you know somewhere inside of you, that there has to be more, much more. When you are able to begin to recognize that your perspective is unfolding for you in every present moment, you return again and again to the wellspring of clarity that is yours, no matter what you are encountering in your perception of the universe. Do not fear, dear ones, any other being that arise, that arrive, with flashes and tremors and great noise, for it is no accident that you are encountering that perspective. And if you return again to your own connection to the infinite, to your perspective, you might find that it awakens within you incredible things. We adore the incredible beings that you are. And we await, with great anticipation, all that you will see. We love you infinitely. time of the day for stories and bedtime, I was sometimes a little bit exhausted. (laughs) As parents everywhere all over the world can relate to, sometimes by the time in the day where you are tucking them into bed, (laughs) you're sort of hitting empty on, on the gas And that's right when they ask for, you know, one more thing, just something else. (laughs) And so I got this idea from a family member that if they ask for a story and they want you to tell them a story, you know, sometimes when you're that exhausted, it's like, I have no idea how to be that creative right now. (laughs) And so what I started to do was to just, tell him the plot lines from movies that he hadn't ever seen. <laughs> so, you know, retelling as best as I can with, you know, drama and different voices and things like that, like something I just watched, or, you know, famous movies. So one time I pick the story of Seabiscuit which for those of you who don't know is a, is a historical movie about a true story, a, a rather small racehorse that went on to be very successful, a champion. It's a true underdog story because this horse is sort of rejected, came out scrawny and wrong from a bloodline of famous racehorses, The jockey also has had a similarly rough life and is looking for redemption. The owner of said horse has had a series of business ventures fail and some tragedies. And they sort of come together along with the trainer and overcome basically the the cards they've been dealt or the situations in their lives that they were born into or happened into or trying to move through. Well, my son started to love the story of Seabiscuit. (laughs) So much so that I had already told him the entire movie, and then he would ask to hear more about Seabiscuit. Well, given that I was sort of a dry well of creative plotline making. (laughs) The stories I retold sort of just became more stories of Seabiscuit not being expected to win a race and then winning it. And he loved it. That was all he really needed. Just wanted to hear that Seabiscuit won. We humans love a good underdog story. And it goes back quite a while. I mean, we read David and Goliath the other day, a story from the Bible about a young boy who's brave enough to face a large warrior from the opposing side. And for those who don't know, takes down the warrior with a single pebble shot from his slingshot that hits Goliath right between the eyes and knocks him out or kills him. Not really sure. And then I was recently researching the Southwest and came across a tale from Navajo lore. And again, don't totally know if this is real because the internet, but anyways, this website claimed that it was a Navajo legend about a time period when giants came out of the West and were sort of attacking the local tribes and eating them and it was quite bad. And the chiefs weren't sure what to do. And a young man who was a little bit obsessed with how to defeat the giants, went off into the desert and helped a lizard who in turn offered his advice for how to defeat the giants. Supposedly, he gave the young man his horned helmet. uh, So he put the helmet on his head. He gave the young man his sort of chest plate. And so he put on the armor. And he said, if you charge the giants, they will run from you and you can basically sort of scare them off of a cliff and defeat them, which he does and wins. Over and over again, it seems, we tell ourselves these stories of being outgunned, outmatched, sure to encounter defeat, or perhaps even unable to overcome our own deficiencies, and then somehow the hero does. Somehow, by a belief in themselves, a willingness to try again, a determination to find the solution. Those solutions arise, those lucky breaks occur, and ultimately the weaker party in the story becomes the victor. Today the chorus brought up a lot of things, as usual. (laughs) But I think one of the main topics that they're pointing out is another linear aspect of our existence related to time, but also kind of just more the linearity, which has to do with one at a time. Now they talk about this topic in the second book. And their point is essentially that by way of the limitation of our thinking construct of our mind, mind, body instrument, we reduced our ability to perceive more of the universe by way of only being able to really contemplate something one at a time. Now, this is interesting to us in the era of multitasking, <laughs> where supposedly we can't do it very well. And according to the chorus's perspective, this would be true. Because we are just expanding back into a place of being able to do more things at once. As we've talked about the difference between focus and attention in the first book and then over these episodes, you'll recall that from the course's viewpoint, focus is that narrowing sensation. It is that turn off all the sounds, close the door, just my book or just my one thing in front of me so that I can really focus on it. They connect this to this limiting function of the, the mind. The sensation that we have is one of a stripping out. I need to focus, meaning I need less. I need less distraction, less noise, less conversation in order to get to an understanding or something accomplished or something that I am deficient in now. I don't have it yet. I need to go study it or I need to go get it done. They contrast this with the idea of attention, which to them is an expansiveness. When we are paying attention, we are sort of doing our best to take in everything we can. All of the slight innuendos, all of the visual observations, everything that's happening in the room around us. When we are paying attention, we sort of lift up and look around they liken this to more of that expansive place that we are moving into where it's a present moment presence in which a lot is being absorbed or received as opposed to processed and analyzed. This one-at-a-time topic relates very strongly to this concept because the one-at-a-timeness is a reflection of this need to focus and to strip out Whereas when we are taking in or doing multiple things at once, it is a more expanded version of this attentiveness, of this this allowance of everything that's happening around us. Now, it's no surprise that at the current juncture and awakening, we sometimes suck at this (laughs) because what we're up against and what we're moving through is a vast, colossal, galactic belief system Full of things that caused us to need to strip things out and focus in order to function in a mental way. So the chorus is saying, Well, there's another side of you, there's an energetic side of you, there are more things to you than just the mind they don't necessarily take issue with the fact that the mind has to do things one at a time. They're simply suggesting that there are other pathways. There are other ways of looking at situations. So one way to experience a reality or an existence is in a a one-at-a-time kind of fashion, but that there may be other ways in which you could receive more at one time. And it, it almost has to have that sense of flow, doesn't it? For those of us who have multitasked and, and then tried to multitask and then, and then tried not to <laughs> multitask, for some of us who have had this exploratory relationship with this topic, we understand that sometimes it feels very flowing. Sometimes it's like, yep, grabbing that, writing this down, calling this person while I'm brushing my teeth. It feels almost invigorating. And then at other times, it feels like our brains are about to explode. (laughs) It's so stressful. There's too much going on. It's really almost like a stimulation overload type of sensation. And the chorus would say, yes, this is a perfect observation. When you are feeling the stimulus overload kind of thing, you are reaching a limit of what the mind's capacity had been able to do in a conscious way. You are consciously recognizing the limits of the current embodiment of the mind. And in those flowing multitasking moments, You are experiencing more of that energetic presence, more of that flow, or maybe you're not calculating as much. You're simply moving to, oh yeah, that, and then this, oh yeah, that. It's a lighter presence. It's a lighter receiving of things as they are coming up. It is not a mental prioritization that then you are trying to enact. It is a presence in what is happening around you, and sort of the things that pop into your head or your field of perception next. So as usual with the chorus, they don't have an issue with the manifestation. They are not picking apart multitasking. They are pointing out the different perspectives on a topic such as multitasking, whether it be from the perspective of a limited mind that hates multitasking, or from the perspective of sort of a more energetically connected perception, where multitasking is potentially a lot of fun and effective. Now, if you look at the story of the underdog, that classic archetype and how that usually unfolds, which would you say it tends toward? Is the underdog story... A one at a time kind of story? Or is it a multiplicity of multitasking kind of story? Often, in the ways that we retell the underdog story, there is a focus upon these two parties or these two factions or or collections of parties, however you decide it. There is typically the underdog, the one that must overcome. And there is the thing to be overcome. And perhaps it's not even an opposing faction or being. Perhaps it's simply that the underdog is trying to be successful in a music career. And this underdog has to overcome all sorts of barriers to get into the open mic night and write those songs. And then someone steals their songs. And then they have to write even better songs. Right. So... In this story, there is often this ongoing back and forth relationship between the object of their goals to beat Goliath, to have a successful music career, and then what the underdog must overcome. If it were not in a one at a time kind of fashion, if there were not simply these two parties, what might a multiplicity of the underdog story look like? what might it look like on a more energetic level? Now, you could say that this would probably change the the way the field is laid out, so to speak, that maybe there's multiple threads and multiple things happening, or maybe there's more than one thing that is trying to be achieved. All true. But something else that might happen is that it might change the tone of the underdog. On an infinite scale, and again, a non-linear infinite scale, meaning infinite dimensions, infinite directions, in all directions, how do you determine who is an underdog and who is not? Now, again, to even understand this concept, we might say, well, we, we need to draw a line <laughs> between the underdog and who or what is trying to be overcome come in order to even understand that relationship. So you see, this one-at-a-time type concept springs up everywhere in how we try to understand the universe and our position in it. Oftentimes, when we talk about an infinite scale, we say, well, there's people more unfortunate than you. As in, you're on a line, we are all on a line, there are people who are more fortunate than you and there are people who are less fortunate than you. Often, this one-at-a-time concept is, is really how we position ourselves in our mental constructs of what we are capable of and what we're not. In school, in learning, we understand who's smarter than us and who isn't. In sports, we understand who's better at that sport than us and who isn't. In our careers, we understand who's in management, perhaps a very strict hierarchical version of a one at a time, but we also sort of understand who is actually better at their job and who isn't. All over the place, we sort of have a question or a topic or a way of understanding our own identity and ways of drawing lines to the next most proficient maybe ahead of us or beyond us, and then the, the next least efficient or effective, which is sort of a line maybe behind us. Now, I am oversimplifying this topic simply to make a point because our lines, our positioning in our understanding of ourselves really shifts around all the time. And from our perspective, that may feel actually quite dynamic But from the chorus's perspective, it is also a representation of one at a time, perhaps simply at a a more accelerated rate or more examples of them, which they would say is a good example of our awakening. Because for a great many millennia, we did not press on those lines. We did not change those lines. We were born into a position and we stayed in that position for the duration of our lifetimes. Today, what we're doing is messing with the lines. We move around way more than we ever have done before. We get promoted, we change a job, we try a new hobby, we suck at that hobby, but then we find things on the internet and suddenly we're actually really good at it, We have something called an overnight success, which is not often truly an overnight success. But we have people who started in a very different position and through all sorts of hard work and maybe some lucky breaks end up in a very different position. So in many ways, this one at a time linear positioning of our identities is breaking down. We are finding that someone can run a company and also be a very good race car driver. We are finding that mothers actually have many other things they can do successfully too. At times, this throws many of our ideas of society and order into question because as many of these lines break apart, What it is representing and reflecting is a fundamental shaking loose of the underlying structure of this delineation. As I was finishing the end of the first book, the chorus and I were doing a lot of sketches that ultimately became the final versions of the diagrams in the first book. Much of that content began as diagrams, about 50% of it, and then I wrote the words into the chapters. But then as we came to, towards the end of the editing process, there was a day where suddenly 12 more illustrations came out of me. It was not something I expected. (laughs) It was a very strange sort of, oh, I need to draw now. And then it all sort of came flooding out of me. Now, I could say that maybe I channeled them, but I got the sense that I had already channeled them or understood them somehow but that moment arrived and it was time for me to draw them. This aspect of timing has shown up again and again for me through this process, that there are things that you feel that you know, but they don't actually kind of come out of you into a five senses manifestation until you reach a certain time, a, a certain timing. So as I'm doing these doodles sort of at the end, a couple come out that I'm like, I don't think that belongs in this book. (laughs) It was more about our history and more about what the chorus called our energetic origins. We've talked a little bit in this season about some of our ancient history And we've talked a little bit about the line of time and how you could also look at time from a hub and a spoke type model where we exist here in the present moment and other times to which we are connected to are reflections of sort of what we're energizing here and now. But as they started to talk to me about sort of this energetic lineage before we arrived here. I started to get the sense that some of the counterparties or others that we had sort of broken off from were still alive and well somewhere in the universe. At the time, this really tripped me up (laughs) because we were talking about a people or a type of existence that we were There was sort of a break off energetically and we started to follow in the path of a different resonance and those other ones are still out there somewhere. And I couldn't understand in my linear based concept how those two things could exist concurrently. It broke my understanding. I needed a line I needed to understand how we got from that point A, way, way, way in ancient history, to here to point B. And the fact that there was this like loose end of a group of beings that chose to go off in a distant existence and are still out there felt really disconcerting to me. So I started to ask questions about this ancient type of being that we were. And they gave me a name, which I'm still not sure I heard correctly, but they said at that time we were the Baleem, B-A-L-E-E-M. I've Googled it. I have not found much with that word, so I'm not sure where this word came from, (laughs) and it may simply be my best interpretation of their perspective. But suffice it to say, at some point deep in our history, we were destructive without remorse. This may have been when we were closer on the energetic wavelengths to that infinite place of, well, everything grows back again, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) And we were moving into sort of limitation where there's finiteness and insufficiency and what we destroy does not come back and has repercussions and maybe we didn't mean to destroy it that much and et cetera. That they consider to be a juncture, a juncture point in our story of ancient history in which we adopted the resonance of remorse. Remorse, by their view, is an energetic standpoint in which we regret and thereby, in a way, deny more of the perspective of what we were and were capable of. If you begin to regret or feel ashamed of, as we've been talking about this season, parts of yourself, you will, as we all know, not do that as much anymore. You will refrain from those things. You will avoid those things. So suffice it to say, there was a juncture in our energetic history at which those of us who are here began to resonate with a sense of remorse. They called us the remorseful Belim. And then there were a faction that continued on <laughs> without remorse. And as I'm understanding, those beings are still alive and well, destroying somewhere in the vast corners of creation and having a great time doing it, not really caring that much that they are doing so because they do not resonate with that frequency or those resultant beliefs. The course described that as we continued to progress on this resonance of being a remorseful bulim, we put more things into place as a society, as a societal structure that would sort of keep us from straying into those destructive places One way of doing that was very strict hierarchical roles, basically family roles, where certain people were given certain things to do and they were expected to not stray from those things because we had found when we strayed by way of our passions or I don't know how we would define it today, we ultimately ended up in those places that we regretted and that we were remorseful over. The chorus says that those belief structures that we built then are still alive and well in our embodiment today by way of the concept that we understand as DNA. Ultimately, as we continue to resonate with that idea that we needed to be more siloed, more structured, more segmented, that we needed to really stick with something and not wander off the path, That became what we would call today a family lineage, a line, something that is handed down from generation to generation by way of a natural proclivity that that they have in order to perform that job in way of a type of fit, but, but also a given obligation, you could say, to have to own or be responsible for or oversee that aspect of the society generation after generation. Do you ever just look around when you're out and about where people are and just kind of notice how differently people are built? I mean, sure, from the chorus's perspective, we're all like basically identical. (laughs) But have you ever noticed that some people just seem to be built for running or some people just have a knack for for money or for finance and and then there are others that seem to be so well equipped to lead in chaos Over and over again, as I have joined different teams or gone on into different industries, I am sort of amazed all over again to find people who very clearly have a way or an adeptness at doing things that others in that role simply don't have. And today in our societies, we still have this idea of lineages. We still have and remember great epics of our civilizations in which it was expected that whoever was born into that family would continue on that family's unbroken ability to do that thing. It is in recent years, it is in recent eras, that this has been called into question, that those who are born into certain families and certain roles don't want to do it. And even more interesting, those who were born into certain families and certain roles have stopped looking, acting, behaving, viewing even the world in the same way as the family did. The chorus says this is a terrific example of our awakening, that we are resonating back into touch with that more infinite place where there is more diversity, more variety, where we are each unique and not necessarily only representative of a family lineage, I would suspect that a five senses manifestation of this resonance will be that we will begin to discover more and more interesting discrepancies in our DNA. Now you could say, well, Katie, maybe we started to have the discrepancies in our DNA and then that's why we're seeing this new characteristic of humankind where each of us are sort of demonstrating in more ways new and different talents. True, totally true from a certain perspective. But could there not also be an equally valid perspective that says that we as a society resonated to a particular place of expansiveness and connection to the diversity of the universe and the reflection of that on our five senses' wavelengths is seen in a growing diversity of our DNA. The chorus once pointed out that, from, again, a certain perspective, you could look at that juncture in our ancient story when we began to feel remorse for the things that we did as ultimately leading us to this point in awakening. You could almost call it an off-ramp from the story of limitation. Now, we delved even deeper into limitation in some ways on our way out. (laughs) We became more and more structured, more and more restricted, more and more siloed until the point that we find ourselves here. And in an infinite universe, it is difficult to say where exactly the off-ramp was because depending on how you look at it, I mean, you could say that we're only just now coming to the off-ramp. Suffice it to say that from the chorus's perspective, that juncture was a very notable juncture in our choice of resonance, in our path. And something else that they have pointed out over and over again to me is that those silos became more than just a difference between your family always makes the rugs and my family always grows the onions— that those silos became so separate and so apart that we eventually lost track of some of the beings in those silos completely. There became, you could say, genetic lineages, lines through these resonances that became distinct, separate, that we resonated through, in in a vast way, all of these concepts and all of these beliefs together. But from another perspective, you could say that what happened was those beings kind of ventured off into their line through this and we ventured down ours. What does our silo represent as humankind? I'm not sure. I think often when the chorus suggests over and over again that we're coming to our own perspective of what it is that we created here, that this is what they're suggesting. I resonate with that feeling of remorse. Feel it every day. (laughs) And I also resonate with the idea that I see some of these barriers crumbling, that you are not predestined to do a thing because of the cards you were dealt at birth anymore that people can change direction and change their paths and so i see both of these perspectives i understand that we could have resonated from that place a very long time ago to get here and i also see the aspects of awakening as the chorus talks a lot about how we will be reconnecting with many other beings in the universe it would not surprise me that if one of the first classes of civilizations that we reconnect to are essentially the lost brothers and sisters from these other parallel and siloed paths that we all took through these last phases of limitation. They may not look like us or, or they might But I think underlying it, there will be aspects of those beliefs that we each hold that we understand. We share something, an experience that we might all call remorse. And should we begin to encounter other species, other races that do not resonate with a concept that we all consider to be remorse, then we may recognize them in that way as being that other class, that other type that ventured off into a different direction from that crossroads of a very ancient time. But perhaps what's the most interesting thing to recognize about that is that at some point we were on the same path together. Before that crossroads, before that juncture and that off-ramp, we were creating an experience of destruction together. So, as usual in an infinite universe, it's up to you where you draw the lines and the delineations. Did our point A to point B begin at that juncture when we began to resonate with remorse? Or did it stretch even further back in time to a place that we may not remember, but that we resonated with? And when the chorus talks about returning to that love of all, that infinite plane of creation, that infinite existence type of place. This is just the beginning of what they are suggesting. That depending on how far or in which direction you look, you may find places in which we have all existed in a same or similar way as every other being that we encounter. That is an expanding perspective. That is an expanding clarity. That is greater connection, in which, as we take on more and different perspectives on our own existence, we find a renewed understanding and connection to every aspect of creation that we encounter. As we come through our underdog story, yes. There are times when it will feel like it is us versus the obstacle. (laughs) But as we begin to feel the silos break down, the definitions crumble, the ways that we segmented ourselves fall apart. We may find that we are never alone. It is never just us versus the world. There are many paths And many options, including even understanding that we have been David and we have been Goliath. And in this way, every underdog story is true. Because ultimately, we all will be victorious.
1: I used to watch the families on TV. Praying to God that that could be me Why does their life look so easy And every problem ends so cheesy Then I start to wonder like Stevie What would I get the fam If the money ain't a thing And the holidays were bang But would I be okay If it never ever changed We don't let the special moments Go and just slip through the clock Cause we know the presence Ain't the things hiding in the box I used to be sad We didn't get a lot Until I learned That you gotta love what you got We don't have your picture perfect Cookie cutter No, it's not your usual But this family's beautiful We don't have your picture perfect Cookie cutter No, it's not your usual But this family's beautiful Way exchange gifts
0: thanks so much for listening we, so we hope you found these messages to be Best helpful may they accelerate you on your path wherever you'd no like it ever. to go for more information on The Chorus and I our podcast book or how to get in touch with us visit katieinthechorus.com thanks again see you next time
1: we don't let the special moments go and just slip through the clock cause we know the presence and the things hiding in the thoughts. Be sad, cuz we didn't get a lot until I learned that you gotta love what you got. We don't have your picture perfect, cookie cutter. No, it's not your usual, but this family's beautiful. We don't have your picture perfect, cookie cutter. No, it's not your usual, but this family's beautiful. It was in the 1980s. My mom and I had rented a house on Dewey Street in Flint, Michigan, and it had a fireplace. I love fireplaces. It was the holidays. I walked in the house, threw my coat off, sat on the floor, and started singing chestnuts. Nice. Oh. Okay. We don't have your picture perfect. Cookie cutter. No, it's not your usual. But this family's beautiful. We don't have your picture perfect, Cookie Cutter. No, it's not your usual, but this family's beautiful. We don't have your picture perfect, Cookie Cutter. No, it's not your usual, but this family's beautiful. We don't have your picture perfect, Cookie Cutter. No, it's not your usual, but this family's beautiful. Um...